Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Alexandra Hooper, a set decoration buyer whose credits stretch from The Pacifier to Pacific Rim, the remakes of Total Recall and Robocop, the miniseries 11, 22, 63, and last year's Jessica Chastain drama, Miss Sloan. She just wrapped the third season of The Expanse, and you can see her work this month in Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, in theaters now, and Alexander Payne's Downsizing, which opens wide this Friday, December 22nd. Alex and I went to film school together way back in the before time, and I'm delighted to have her on this week, not just because two of her movies are coming out, but because the film she picked, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, is a Christmas movie. At least as far as Christmas can be a thing in the dystopian England Gilliam created in his 1985 masterwork, a comedy as dark as they come... Brazil follows the odyssey of Sam Lowry, a functionary in a massive, impossibly convoluted universe who's radicalized when he discovers that a simple bureaucratic error has resulted in the death of an innocent man and that the woman of his dreams is, well, a rebel. Starring Jonathan Price as Sam with Kim Greist, Robert De Niro, Michael Palin, Catherine Hellman, and Ian Holm in key supporting roles, this was a movie that smacked both Alex and me in the brain with its visual genius, but only one of us took the next logical step. This is someone else's movie. I thought about all the movies that I love and have seen millions of times over the years, and I'm not a huge movie watcher, um, but Brazil I've probably seen a couple dozen times. Yeah. But it's funny, I haven't watched it in about 10 years. Okay. So um, I watched it, and you, in fact, were the person that got me to watch it in film school, because it came out in 1985. You said, oh, we have to go see this movie. I think it was playing in a rep cinema. Oh, that's was it, was it the Bloor, maybe? Yeah. And so we went to see it, and I had ended up in film school, not because I wanted to go to film school, but because I had won a bunch of journalism scholarships, and I didn't want to do journalism, so I wanted to go to art school. And my mom said, you are not going to art school and wasting your brain. You pick something. I don't care what it is, but you're going to university. So I had a friend who said, why don't you try film? That seems cool. So I just wrote it down, got in, and ended up there. Um, but of course, I'm glad I did. Yeah. So I hadn't really, you know, movies wasn't sort of my main thing. I was more a visual art kind of person. Oh, yeah, that's why Brazil, of course, I think, totally like dragged so, you to Beetlejuice, maybe? Or yeah. Away. I remember <laughs> yeah. I saw a bunch of stuff. And it was all, I start, I looked at it from a different point of view. So when I saw... When I saw Brazil, like I also was a big fan of J.G. Ballard novels. Mm -hmm. So this sort of very dark comedy, sarcastic version of what the future was going to be and a very bleak version. But when I saw Brazil, I thought, oh, my God, the Dutts are a character in that movie. Like everything about that movie was like nothing I'd seen before. Um, I loved the fact that it was a sarcastic, funny version of the apocalyptic future and yet, it was kind of weird and retro as well. Yeah. But I, I loved watching it at the time more for the story. Um, but as time went on, I appreciated it more for the set and all the crazy 
Well, I guess, you know, it was steampunk before this idea of steampunk. And yeah. now I figure, you know, steampunk is a little bit tired because Restoration Hardware thinks that it's a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's been co-opted now. Yeah, so now it's a little boring. But back then, I it, it still stands the test of time. So I watched it last week when, uh, when you had contacted me. And I saw it from a totally different point of view, because now I see it from an intimate knowledge of what it takes to make a set yeah, like that. Yeah, of course. And it did not have a big budget either. No, I think it was, my head tells me it was 6.5 or 7 million or something at the time. Yeah, it's probably even maybe, smaller than that. Yeah, like not huge. Maybe, or maybe as big as like 15. But, you know, now that I've been working on $250 million movies, uh-huh. and, you know, I know the budget. Like, I think um, I personally have spent... Two million dollars. I think that's what I personally spent on, like, on Total Recall or something yeah. like that. Um, so, just to watch this, I, I started getting stressed out about. I was like, <laughs> oh my god, look at all those ducts. Geez, those are the kind. Those are, um, you know, oil permeable, blah 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 kinds of hosing, right. and that's you know, mechanics hosing. You know how much that is a foot? And I just kept having to say, okay, just stop it. Just watch it. Just watch it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> But uh, I thought it was incredible, and even all the machines they they found, I was just staring at everything from completely new eyes. So I was looking at, uh, there's a scene where they go down this long row. Where yeah, every, the adding machine good. typewriter thing. Yeah. Those were designed, too. They couldn't have been no, found. It, and I was looking at all the little bits on them and thinking, that's from a this, and that's from a typewriter, and that's actually a mechanical button. Uh-huh. And then on the side of them, they had these weird accordion things, and they're actually those manila accordion files, but they'd all been sprayed and painted silver. Right, so they were like part bellows. of the machine. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, it's brilliant. And I kept uh, looking at all the little details, even all the, the walls of filing cabinets. Mm-hmm. And it, it all symbolizes just how ridiculous uh, everything has become, like all the, you know, administration of everything. And, um, you know, and of course, the guy getting, you know, eaten by paperwork in the end of the show. Mm. And uh, the two guys sharing half of a desk That's in the right. <laughs> like Buttle. Um, and the Tuttle and the right? uh, yeah. Charles McCown is that's yeah. the other actor is yeah. the guy who co-wrote the script, which I always find so wonderful, is that he's fighting for half of a thing the same way his credit <laughs> is shared with Gilliams forever. Yeah, it is the book, The Battle of Brazil, by by Jack Matthews, is amazingly detailed about how much suffering went on at every stage of it because it was this monster project for Gilliam, even though now it look, we look back and it's really small and it's all in sound stages and it's 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 been curated so perfectly that it doesn't feel like a tiny budget, scrappy little production. But yeah, everything was a fight. Every detail was a fight. Every memo was an argument. And what we're left with is this incredible artwork. Like it basically is a, it's an installation you keep going to different corners of. It just keeps yeah. unfolding and showing you new things. But yeah, the, the reviewers are all, oh, this is Kafka, this is bureaucracy, this is all this stuff. Now it feels to me much angrier than it did at the time. It was a comedy, you know, like that's how they pitched it, and yeah. it is funny. Yeah. But there's real rage, and, and the Ballard comparison lands a lot better now, I think, than it would have at the time, because nobody really got the snotty British dystopia class thing. Yeah that this is all about. Yeah. And somehow a Christmas movie. I know. <laughs> Which it's the thing I always forget, but it opens with Christmas shopping and there are people having Christmas puddings and dinners and it runs throughout the whole thing. And it yeah. again, it's just one more thing that 
that is taken away from the characters over the course of the movie that this this ostensibly beautiful celebration is utterly crass, utterly commercialized. Gilliam doesn't care about it at all. It's just there to be a lie. Yeah. And that's yeah, that's again Ballard. It, you're you dead on. It comes right back to it. Yeah. And then also it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To... And I remember the I think I almost remember the plastic surgery thing being bigger than it was. Mm. But the plastic surgery thing is is hilarious because it just uh, basically just shows like just how everyone is all surface everything. Like everything is about show. And, and meanwhile, there's this underbelly of ducks. And well, the ducks just go right through everything. I mean, yeah. there are Christmas trees in a beautiful home with dressed up ducks going yes. through the middle. So it's all about how the creeper, creepy underbelly and how everything is behind these walls but it's still now all creeping in and i think the ducks are really the star of the show and i think yeah. <laughs> um i love how they are in fact a character and in, in the show yeah and the real uh the real buttle tuttle the, the the de niro character when yeah. we finally see him is a resistance fighter who is also a plumber like he basically mm-hmm. is and and says it you know, like the shit we're all in it together there the sense that he is literalizing the metaphor every time he shows up and he only has a couple of scenes but his his value and getting De Niro at the time was a big deal too and he didn't even want that part he wanted the main character yeah yeah Sam Lowry who I just Jonathan Price I've never gotten to talk to him I've never met him and it's one of those things where I really hope we get to sit down someday because he's he was, such a fascinating perfect in that yeah yeah a little scared a little arrogant angry yeah. that yeah. the anger that comes up over the course of it and the desperation and yeah, just this guy. The more you think about who Sam is, he's a nobody who's got a connected mother. He seems to want to not do anything because his father was so big and left such a, a large shadow. And all of those things are kind of important, but not really either. I mean, describing the film has become really difficult because it's now it's its own thing. It's if you say, "Oh, it's like Brazil," you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't do justice to any of the themes or any of the the emotional arcs that go on in it. You just think about ducks. But you have to because they are, yeah, they are central to both the metaphor and the actual visuals. I mean, you can't not think about weird piping and, and oh, and that just, I, I always think about that one shot of... De Niro hopping on the zip line and being instantly replaced by a tiny little action figure. It's so clearly yeah. miniature and it doesn't matter because you're at that point where it's like, yeah, okay. It's all so fantastical. Exactly. Yeah. You just buy it. And and at the time too, I mean, this is the thing that I keep thinking about with your gig. In a world where in a world where uh, where CGI is replacing literally everything, mm-hmm. you can still spend two million dollars on stuff. You can still have, like, there still has to be an environment because the prequels showed us, the Star Wars prequels specifically, showed us that you can't do that. You have to build the world. Yeah. And even though you can work on a movie with giant monsters and punching giant robots, the the environments that those robots land on have to be real and the worlds of the people have to be real. And Brazil is the reverse because there's no CG. There wasn't any. There wasn't available to them. It didn't exist. But also... Everything's little. All the all the big sets had to be realized as miniatures. The the 
you know, Sam's truck driving along with the tube through the road of billboards, yeah. which is just this amazing visual. And most of those are, what, a quarter scale because they're using sets and tiny little miniature sets to, to convey that because they couldn't build it. Yeah. It's just such an amazing, like, it is so bespoke as a world that, that um, I, I just, I, I imagine his hands bloody from the effort somehow. And, yeah. And that it works, that it, that it coheres is just stunning um there are there are things in there that are just seconds long but if you didn't have them it would take away from the movie like there are scenes where he's running through part of a big factory like i i just saw these big overhanging foreboding pieces that are supposed to be giant pieces of metal and hanging over the streets and and I thought, oh my God, they built that, and it's what twenty seconds of screen yeah. time, and that's you know that's thousands of dollars right there. And the scenes where, um, you know, they're chasing the when he gets the job in the Ministry of uh, Information, and uh, they're running through the hallways, and then it's quiet, and you just see all down the rows and rows of hallways, yeah. and then suddenly the crowd appears and goes and runs, but they had to build yeah. a certain amount of that, and. That's expensive. Yeah, <laughs> I just thought, yeah. wow, just for these short gags, they built beautiful, incredible sets. And every time there's one of those really packed, crowded scenes, you know, when he's in his apartment and, you know, he puts the toast in and it burns it and then pops up. And then all of a sudden the automatic coffee maker is spilling all yeah, over the toast. Things. All those amazing devices that they made and... You know, it sticks out for you, and I was just watching all that, thinking that's so much work, and it's so beautiful, and the movie wouldn't have been what it was with all those little funny characters, and the fact that the world is so mechanized, and yet it's also still failing. Like, everything about it was just half-assed and failing, and everything's constantly breaking down, and they've reached this level of everything being mechanized, but it's all just this horrible soup of ducks in in the walls and crazy haphazard machines that have bits and pieces attached and which, everything breaks. <laughs> yeah, which extends out to the bureaucracy itself, which is fouling up constantly because yeah. either no one is maintaining it or that's the point, right? I mean, that's the other thing. Watching Brazil now in the age of bad actors or people who are out to actually dismantle, you know, like that's Steve Bannon's thing, right? He yeah. got Trump elected so he could dismantle the American government for whatever purpose. And, yeah. and watching it now, it's like, oh, this is maybe 15 years later this has already gone wrong everything is already collapsed and maybe it's because of thatcher or maybe this is a completely alternate reality which i somewhere in the 20th century was the tagline Mm -hmm. uh in the opening super and it's great because it gives him the out of oh you know this is from heath it doesn't matter it's still britain but it's it's been perverted for so long that there's really no point in trying to figure out where it went wrong we're all just living in it yeah. And coping with it or not coping with it the best we can. It's true. It's sort of that sense of bleakness that we all think it's all so rotten. What the hell do we even do about it? Yeah. Oh, we just go about our daily business. That's what we do. And I thought that was brilliant. And I thought, you know, if I watch it again, is it going to stand the test of time? Mm-hmm. And I think it does. Yeah. Because the messages almost more than ever are real. And what you said, I think it seems more angry in light of how the world is now and just the you know what's funny though i was watching it and i thought this is not a political film like there's no there are no political figures in it really it's not political it's 
just all about how rotten the whole societal system and how we've set up the world. It's more about that. It's not politics as much. Yeah. Well, there's no campaigning. There's no sense of a message. No. The highest people we meet in terms of position are still functionaries. They're ministers, but they're not... They don't have the power to decide anything. Mm -hmm. And, And then that brings us to Michael Palin's character, who is just the sweetest and nicest man who is also going to hurt you. Yeah, and 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 he's he's, the killer guy. (laughs) He's regretful about it, but he's going to do his job. Well, it's my job. Yeah, and everyone everyone is doing that, except for uh, Kim Greist. And and she's doomed in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, She, we can spoil things. Uh, (laughs) She doesn't even die on screen. It it happens out of frame. We don't, she doesn't get that. Jill doesn't have that moment. Yeah. And... It's because everything Sam believes in has to be taken away to get to that ending. But, again, the balls to pull it off, just the the sense that you can make this movie for a studio, uh, for Universal in 1985, or shooting it in 84, just, just, it's so on the nose, and it's so great that he manages to make it work. But the world that he's built... There can't be a happy ending. That world doesn't allow for one. There's no. The only time we see sunshine is when people are escaping to something that won't work. It's it's just so heartbreaking, yeah, uh, and oppressive. And you get it. Like while you're watching it, you understand where these people are and why they're like this. Is hope has been snuffed out. They've just never had it. It's never. It's never been a thing that mm-hmm. they could talk about. And that's why, again, that's why Christmas feels so phony and and ugly and, and scabrous because it's all it's all a lie yeah and you know and your and your protector can show up in his father christmas suit and tell you that the woman you love is dead and well you know it's how it goes yeah she's up to stumps yeah he can't even say it he can't even articulate it i mean I, yeah the first time i saw it it was just this is there's never been anything like this no and i think a lot of movies have been like that since it's been made like mm. I, so many movies have piggybacked off of that and of course, I recently just watched Blade Runner before seeing the new one. Right. And again, the same things. I just thought, wow, it totally stands the test of time. It's brilliant. Knowing that they didn't have all the CGI back then, it just makes it more amazing that they actually made that film. And it's the same sort of idea and look that now so many films have ripped off both of them yeah and this has sort of set the tone for apocalyptic future and you know i'll get onto a show and um you know sometimes we've done these great big superhero things and okay it's the future so that means there's no color everything's made of metal and plastic i we were starting some show and the production designer said you know i had this really great idea for the future what if we figured it out what if everything is made of you know bamboo and hemp and all these renewable things no that, that's just not the way it is everything is still made of plastic in the future it's a great idea i'd watch that yeah. I believe that and you know what else is funny about future movies because now i've done tons of them um at what point did we throw out all of our stuff because <laughs> oh, now, that's right all these pristine spartan spaces exactly and you look around our houses now and it's like well that was my grandmother's you know whatever the bureau from 1920 and this is but at some point in the future, apparently we threw everything in the garbage and everything is made of, you know, plastic and wood. And I don't know. Maybe it's when we had to go on spaceships. I assume there was an Ikea war of some sort. Yeah. 
the, the terrorist release of virus that, d- that destroy everything made of wood. Yeah. And we just were in the post that. <laughs> I, I mean, so you saw Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. So I think that it's been unfairly attacked for its design when what it feels like to me is that it's built on the world of 82. Like mm-hmm. it's imagining a future that was imagined then. It didn't you know, a wise and commenting on our present day. And it can't because it's rooted in that original film. So it has to go in that direction. I thought it was beautiful and brilliant. I really enjoyed it. So I don't know. It's funny. It's getting some bad press, but I think it's fantastic. Like we really, really liked seeing oh, yeah. it. We The Expanse, uh, I was just working on The Expanse and they did a crew screening for us, which was fantastic. We saw the old one followed by the new one. Oh, that's right. At, at Cinesphere. You told me about so, this. Yeah, Cinesphere. So it, it was yeah, that was such a treat. Um, but it was good. And I found that the main comment <laughs> that everyone made coming out of the new one was we were all saying, what happened to the dog? Yeah, you worry about the dog. <laughs> that was it. But otherwise, our, we thought it was absolutely fantastic. But everyone was wondering what happened to the dog. I assume the dog is a replicant or a synthetic or whatever they're called. Oh, I so he'll be fine. That. He's just eating plastic in a corner. Okay. He's Our okay. Bees. And there was a lot of booze there for him to eat, too. Yeah. yeah. He's fine. <laughs> well, I thought of other movies that I sort of liked that were in that genre, like Idiocracy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Same idea, but, you know, a lot funnier, but, you know, very in tune <laughs> with what's going on now. I think that's a movie nobody saw, but I think it's sort of strangely funny and brilliant. It was barely released. Fox dumped yeah, it. Yeah. And that's what the it's only great. place I saw it's it. It's really funny. Yeah, it's it's held up disturbingly well. Yeah. It gets... I mean, it's totally boring, but um, yeah, I think it is also pretty relevant to the whole Donald Trump world we're in now. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, the other thing about the Trump thing is that he'd get bored with this movie. Mm-hmm. There's not enough sex. There's not enough anything. There's no. all talking and thinking. And he doesn't and have concepts that are reflected in the movie, like all about, you know, how we're being crushed by bureaucracy and th- he wouldn't even understand that yeah, sort of he doesn't like nonsense. bureaucracy it gets into the it's in the way yeah like doing whatever he stuff. wants yeah. yeah and the and the world that is being navigated by the film in brazil is the one that gets even darker it mm-hmm. doesn't it well you were talking about the happy the happily ever after the the love conquers all version yeah. famously uh released to television by universal as an act of spite mm-hmm. so you know the story goes that Gilliam delivered his cut. Universal hated it. Uh, Sid Sheinberg was among the sort of the point guy as the as the guy running the studio. Just didn't like it. Didn't get it. And personally, wanted to kill it. And so one of the things they offered as a solution was this other cut, which took the film from about 145 minutes to 97, and slaps on a happy ending. Uses a still frame here and there at the end. Completely changes the climax of the film and basically rips out anything that might be too distasteful. All the mistakes uh, the characters make, all the misunderstandings that lead to tragedy, they're just gone. I, I did watch it. Uh, it was included on the Laserdisc when they released it in 95, and it's ugly. Like, it's ugly in a way that's not artistic or redeeming. No, it's a bit of a mess, and it just... And the score's different, and yeah. it just doesn't... It doesn't feel like an artwork. It feels like a thing. Yeah. Like, this... this they, they, there were a bunch of um, alternate cuts released for Universal Television in that little window of time. I think there's another version of the thing that has a couple of extra shots at the end to imply some different ending. I've never seen that, but I'm told it's out there. And it's just, 
it's an abomination. Like it is actually mm-hmm. the thing. I'm so glad Criterion restored it, res- rescued it, and included it because you can't fully understand what Gilliam was fighting against until you see it. Yeah. Um, because the 131 minute cut is magnificent. The theatrical release and and. The greatest tragedy of the longer final final cut is that it loses that jump cut, that absolutely amazing jump cut of the bag going on Sam's head and being pulled off to show him in that chair with that incredible tracking shot. That's gone now. There's stuff in between. And it's fine, but it's not as powerful. No. And I I have interviewed Gilliam a number of times, which is like the greatest pleasure of my life because he's so much fun to wow. talk to and I've asked him about it and he's like no no I wanted it longer that that was an accident it's like yeah but it's a great accident yeah and he said it was fine but this is what I wanted and I get that but at the same time that 131 minute cut is so much meaner yeah because it's still gonna end where it ends yeah yeah and that just that your stomach drops out that hopelessness mm-hmm. was so powerful and yeah that yeah. set was amazing too oh my god I have yeah. a feeling it's they like did a it. silo or something isn't yeah, it yeah I, I was looking at it it looks like poured concrete or something and it looks like it was done in a silo yeah. but that's incredible it's probably like the Battersea power station or something yeah. some tube that they never thought they'd use for a film yeah. but yeah. it just yeah and there that's when there's a little bit of light right there's there's a ray of sunshine Technically, mm-hmm. it's not helping anyone, but there's this that lit it's lit by what appears to be natural light, and it is also hopeless. It's it's so it's so inexorable, there's no way out, there's never going to be a way out for Sam. Mm-hmm. And then that's why that that final sequence, which was turned into an actual triumph in the Love Conquers All version, can't be real. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's not real. Some part of you, even before the impossible things start happening what happens to Tuttle and taken away by paper and all that and the the revolution that the Love Conquers All version cuts that but it ends with him blowing up the ministry and it's basically a, I think it's a continuity photo being shaken or a still frame being shaken to imply an explosion that doesn't oh happen in the gosh. film and it's just it's a lie I mean you know this isn't going to work for him it's there's nothing in this two-hour movie that you've already experienced that tells you it's going to be okay. No, it's all been leading up to not that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just confusing at the end. Yeah. I mean, I remember sitting in the theater thinking, that doesn't feel right. And mm-hmm. just being aware, because I was, I was still in high school, I guess I was 17, and being aware or 18 that I was being manipulated, that all of a sudden, this film, which I had totally committed I was completely inside of it and suddenly it just feels like it's losing its way and then your head starts fighting with it mm-hmm. like your, your brain starts thinking well no this there's there has to be a reason this is happening Terry Gilliam is not an idiot I mean you must you must be misinterpreting it like I was wrong and then the music starts to sour and you can sort of feel it yeah but that that's thrilling too when that happens and it almost falls apart and writes itself again yeah and how do you process that now? I mean, because that can only ever work once, right? Repeat viewings, you know where it's going, and yeah. your brain can scan it differently. Did it work for you the first time? Did you have that? I I think the first time I saw it, I was totally sucked in. Yeah. Um, you know, and I wasn't at the point yet where I knew enough about film that I was analyzing every little corner of it. But I just went right along with the story and wondering what was going to happen next. But you knew that it was going somewhere really dark and bleak at at the end. And I saw the, you know, the dark bleak one the first time I saw it. Right. And I was completely sucked in from beginning and end. 
and I didn't like I just didn't feel that it was as long as it was because I was just along for the ride I thought it was fantastic Mm -hmm. and even the other day when I saw it I was right I knew it was coming but it was still I I got pretty sucked into it except when I was worrying about how much all the ductwork cost (laughs) but uh, I thought yeah I think it's beautifully crafted but I did remember seeing it on TV that time and when it was the happy ending one, yeah. I just thought, am I remembering this right? Like, this this is not what I remember. And thinking, this is sort of crappy. And then when it had the happy ending, I I thought, wait, what is this? This is this didn't happen. Yeah, am I having a Did stroke? Did they cut is something this... out of it? And then you, I, I had talked to you and you said, oh, no, they made another cut. Yeah. It was the happy TV version. And it was so disappointing and it just chopped up the whole... Yeah. Thing it didn't work at all, but it was that film that made me realize that part of the job of production design is, um, it supports the characters in the movie, but it can be a character, and it's almost like there's two things that I work on. It's futuristic or fantastical things that the set itself is is its own character, hmm. and sometimes you're working on something that's pure reality, like. I love the movie Winter's Bone because it's about people who are so tragically, horribly poor. And I remember that the set in that movie, because you wouldn't think it was a set. You, you, as a, normal viewers would just think, oh, they found this really horrible rundown shack. Right. But I'm sure they built most of that, oh, yeah. that stuff. And every single item on the counters was something that had been handled a million times it was just dirty and broken and cobbled together and it was every necessary little thing that they had in life and they didn't have anything fancy and I just was looking around their their houses and just thinking how beautifully done everything like there was it was flawless even the crappy machinery that was left over in the lawns the grass had grown up through it that stuff wasn't there yeah yeah a greens department came in and put that grass in and gave it enough time so that it all the blades of grasses were going in the same direction and going towards the light like it was I just thought it was flawless the 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 characters were great so when I'm teaching my set deck 101 courses I teach that what is it that we do props is the things that actors touch so they interact with these things so they get a lot more play in the movie it's our job to not be visible Whereas on sci-fi and things like Brazil, it is the job to be visible. Like, it's part of the, the the characters. But we're almost like the wallpaper. And so in something like that, our job is to... It tells the story about an actor. So you have an actor walk into a room, and you can tell something about them from the costume they're wearing. But if it's a 30-second scene, you should be able to tell... Like, if it's an old couple, like, oh, look, all their stuff is cluttered around their chair. So you can tell they sit in that chair every day of their life, and their right. phone was in reach, and they've got Kleenexes and little labels on their pill bottles and, you know, their TV tray. And so you have to really think about the character and the fact that it's your responsibility to tell something about that character so that in 30 seconds, the audience, without thinking that that's what they're having done to them, yeah. you're giving them all the information they need to know about that character. Yeah. So... Um, I don't know, I, I think that when I first saw Brazil, it was the first time that I was aware of what production design did. Because, you know, I would always think about just actors and how they tell the story, but I realized what a big job it was 
to create this world that it really tells the story for you as well. Yeah. Well, so this does sort of line up nicely with the final question on the podcast, which is always the same, which is what of Brazil has gotten into your, uh, if anything, have, have you, like, what of Brazil, if anything, has, has made its way into your creative DNA? Have you used it? Have you referenced it? Have you tried not to turn something into Brazil? Have you ever been asked to go with more ducts than you thought was necessary? <laughs> no, I think um, I think it's really relevant because uh, the amount of stuff that is packed into each scene, like you almost have to watch that movie five or six times just to see all the jokes in the background. Like um, my husband Paul and I were watching it and we kept <laughs> pausing it to read all the signs. Right. Um, like consumers for Christ and crazy stuff like that. Yeah. So they've got all these sort of wartime look posters that have really funny things written on them and you almost have to have a pause button so you can um you could read them like i remember there's a scene where a woman's walking her dog and remember the papers are flying everywhere and she's bossing him around well the dog has a little x of tape over its bum so that it doesn't you know pollute the atmosphere when it's walking around pooing on the street um (laughs) so it's just all those silly little details that they took the time to put in so I think that really makes a difference. Like, um, I always say the hardest thing to do is, say, a pack rat's house. Um, mm. Because you have to think about every item that's gone in there has come in at a certain time. There is a reason why it was there. It was put on that pile. Oh, my God. Strata. So, of course. I've never even thought. I'm, I'm looking around. Yeah. Look, like, it looks like a pack rat space here. <laughs> And it's really just a bunch of CDs and boxes that we haven't figured out how to store yet, I promise. (laughs) But I always say, like, everyone says, oh, my God, your job must be so fun. And they imagine me in a pretty outfit going in stores and saying, oh, that's a lovely couch. I'll take it. But really, my job is going to the craziest places. Like, how do you find, um, you know, if I I was doing this area, so I'd want to find old Tupperwares that were from you know, 10 or 20 years ago, and they have to be scratched up. You don't go to a store and buy that, and I have to get old boxes, or, you know, there's a Kleenex, or there's a little tiny rubber duck, like all the little details that are from different eras and have been touched by hands a million times, and those getting layered down. One of the first things um, I ever did was I was doing a big wedding scene in a TV series, and I went to pay the baker for all the cakes he'd made. And he said, don't come in my office. This is really messy. I don't want you to see. So he opened the door and I said, oh, that's amazing. And I stepped right in and grabbed my camera and started taking pictures because every piece of paper and invoice was piled on the desk for years gone by. And, you know, his little nephew's dinky car was there and a mitt. And it was all sandwiched between these layers of paper up to the ceiling. It was crazy. And I thought that has been one of the reference photos that stuck with me and brazil was like that it's so packed full of information that you could just pause it and look around and know something about the character like all those weird little devices and robots and mechanized things and personal crazy items so i think that's what stayed with me is how you can really pack so much into a scene but it has to look well it has to look believable Mm -hmm. as well yeah so it's like advanced clutter that helps tell a story okay and given that you have worked on or you have worked in two major films that are out now or about to be um is there any one thing that people should is there a proudest moment you have for dressing the shape of water or downsizing yes well shape of water the two main characters apartments Mm -hmm. um i had I, i did a lot of the buying for 
for that. So we had a fantastic decorator, Shane Vio. He's amazing. He's got such a beautiful vision. And he um, he starts with a color. So he decides what color the characters are going to be. And we sort of work from there. But their apartments, especially the Giles character. Yeah, so these are the two mirrored apartments yes. that, uh, yeah. just for people who might not have seen it yet, that, that Sally Hawkins and Richard Jenkins occupy above the movie theater that is secretly a Toronto treasure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And those were built, and most, most people wouldn't know this, they were both built in the studio. So all the cracking plaster and lath that's falling from the ceiling, you know, the carpenters would put that up, and then we would, uh, or the scenic painters would come in and, mm. and have the drips coming down. And I spent thousands of dollars on hand-printed wallpaper for that whole place and then they put it up and then they run water down it and age it down yeah. and so everything looks like it's just been sitting there forever and Sally Hawkins has the one thing she spends money on is shoes she loves shoes it didn't come out as much in the movie as as we had imagined it but she has all these old shoes and we had to find them and then have them dyed and add little jewels to them um, and every little piece that's in her kitchen was lovingly found at little shops. And um, her her bed cover, I think, is my favorite thing in the whole movie. <laughs> um, Shane had showed me some pictures of, uh, you know, in the old Sears catalogs, you find these satin bed covers that had piping around the edge oh, and all yeah, the, yeah. the pleated stuff, and it fit perfectly. So we had found this gorgeous old bed. I had a mattress made for it because no mattresses fit the weird sizing. And then we had the beautiful bed covers made. And, you know, it's all dark and it's all just pieces of a room, but I love the bed covers. Like we chose the fabrics and it was all in the color palette. So I just think those apartments turned out absolutely beautifully. And the bathroom that the monster sits in when they bring him home, mm -hmm. um, that was in the studio. So they, you know, we got the old tile and they crack it and age it and... You know, we find the old bathroom fixtures. So everything there had so much thought put into it, and uh, I think it turned out beautifully. Yeah, I mean, it is a film of just gorgeous textures. I, I saw it back in September and was just struck by just the stuff. That, you know, there's a location that's not far from here, the Lakeview, and I just walked by yeah. a couple of days later and just thought, none of that is there. Like, the yeah. mixers are there. That's the only thing. Like, everything else, even the front is fake. It's a Baltimore street uh, scene when you finally see it in the film and it's mm -hmm. just the tiniest decision changes everything about that aspect the aesthetic it all it all depends on what we see mm -hmm. and how our brains process what we see and then and there's there's soothing colors in in the apartments in the shape of water that aren't present anywhere else and yeah. the lab is all granite and and ugly gray stone and, and the lab is entirely built in the studio mm -hmm. too so it's not like that was a location and you know they faked all the concrete and you know all the pool where the, where the monster is and that just took months to build but it yeah. looks God, amazing it looks, yeah it looks fantastic and even the restaurant i think i spent some ridiculous amount of money on drapes i think um well we had every single chair upholstered it's you know it, it, they run through it so mm -hmm. you don't see it but you know just the detail the beautiful curtains they're all made of double-sided silk and they're hand printed with a design on them and you know, we had two different kinds of trim that they brushed out and cut to look old like it had been there forever. So all the textures in that whole show, I think it's probably the most satisfying thing I've ever worked on. Oh, wow. And it's so beautiful. I, and the performances are flawless. 
So, and Guillermo would come into the room every now and then, and he'd say, "Oh, I'm sorry to bother you, but I was just thinking about this one character, and maybe she would have some birds, a collection of, you know, ceramic birds and things around her house." So we'd say, "Of course, that's beautiful. What a great idea!" So you know, we'd round them up, and but he would come in with these little pieces of the、mm. characters that he would have just thought of overnight, and but, yeah, so it was great. So everyone had so much to. To do, he loved to hear people's suggestions too. And、uh, Shane, the decorator, like he liked when we found things, and he'd go, "Yeah, that's fantastic! I love it. Get it!" And so it just felt like such a collaborative movie. It actually felt like a little movie. It felt like when I first started in film, and it was like a little family. Yeah, it was the first time I've had that feeling in forever. Oh, that's lovely. And you certainly don't get it on the big superhero movies. But、yeah. well, is there anything in downsizing that people should look for that was? Um, An inspiring、uh, moment, or or something that you guys felt that you accomplished, because、yeah, downsizing by comparison is a, you know, no pun intended, huge film. Yeah, it's, it's a big,、yeah. big production shot in dozens of locations. It's got, it, and you know, it, it's not the kind of intimate study. Things are whizzing past you constantly. There's stuff、yeah. left and right all the time. Is there anything that you、There's、want people to look for? There's things that I wasn't sure. I'm not sure. I haven't seen it yet.、Oh. I'm really excited to do a. Crew screening because I want to see how it turned out. But there are little things like in Small World,、uh, we were told to to look for things that say would be on the street. So we're walking around on the way home and things, looking at what's in the gutter that they would have, you know, found. Because the tiny people who lived in the ghetto in Small World.、Um, Just use found objects,、mm-hmm. so they would find something like a bottle cap, and that would be their coffee table. So we had some of those things made. We had bottle caps. We had a giant champagne cork. We had someone knit,、um, someone knit a giant mitten, and that's what the kids slept in in one of the、mm-hmm. apartments. And I don't know how much of it made it into the. I think that's the all there.、Film. I think maybe the mitten is in a corner somewhere. Oh, good. <laughs> I vaguely remember that. My my, the thing that strikes me the most is that Christoph Waltz's character has this. Huge photograph of him with a cigar, looking incredibly debonair in his apartment. And the more time you spend with it, the more you realize that it's a Polaroid that's been thumbtacked to the wall. Yes, but it's just a gorgeous image. It's probably my favorite thing in the whole film. Well, it's funny because we tried, you know, the outside of a Polaroid, the white part. Yeah, we tried making it out of several things because it wasn't getting the right reflective. Sort of that、oh, weird yeah. opalescent. Yeah, it's、thing. it's smooth but not. There's sort、yeah. of cream and, to the image. Yeah, and almost like a graininess to the actual finish, but also a creaminess. So I think we tried five or six versions of it and put it up and was like, nah, we, that doesn't look like a Polaroid yet.、Huh. So it's all these sort of little things that you know you you know you've spent so much time on, and you see the film and say, oh yeah, that worked really well. Oh, I'm so glad we did that. Or sometimes somebody runs by it, and you just think, "Slow down! I didn't see that really cool thing <laughs> that we spent days making." And you know, because we have everything made, we'll go out and find furniture everywhere and have it reupholstered. We had everything reupholstered on that show, but、um, I'm interested to see how it looks, especially the little Norwegian village too. Yeah, that's pretty striking. Yeah. Yeah.、And、okay. Good. Discussing anything further would constitute a spoiler, so we'll cut it off there. Okay. Perfect. Third act stuff, kids. You'll see it. <laughs> That's great. My thanks to Alex Hooper, whose work can be seen very vividly on the big screen this month in the sets of Guillermo del Toro's *The Shape of Water* and Alexander Payne's *Downsizing*. Go check those out and be inspired. 
Alex isn't much for social media, but you can find her in the credits of dozens of movies and TV shows. Uh, you can also find Brazil on Blu-ray and DVD in a magnificent special edition from the Criterion Collection, the one we were talking about. It includes both Gilliam's 1995 restoration and the Love Conquers All cut of the film, preserved for all time as the one thing you should never, ever, ever do to a movie. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And if you're seeking an extra shot of Christmas cheer, Paul Sun Young Lee and I join Jeremy Lalonde to talk about The Muppet Christmas Carol on episode 37 of Jeremy's podcast, Black Hole Films, along with two of their kids. That was a lot of fun. You should go listen. I do a Patrick Stewart imitation. It's not bad. Thanks for listening.